0: Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. We are recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun, and our goal with this company and brand, as you know, is to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness. And today, we continue that journey with my next guest, Brianna Reeser. So I had the opportunity to meet Brianna at an opening for friends of ours, a new business Uh, from Michael and Jesse called Optimize. We were down in the Phoenix area, North Phoenix area. And um, we actually just kinda ended up sitting by one another and and Brianna actually struck up a conversation with me and we got to talking about health and wellness. And uh, during the course of this conversation, I would learn that not only does she have a PhD, not only does she work in and around wellness and health, but she has a tremendous passion for helping people increase those aspects of their lives. And in her current capacity, she's helping to allocate funds to incentivize doctors who create better outcomes for their patients. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about the healthcare as a structure and, um, dive into some of the things that we can do or some ideas that she has around increasing those outcomes and bettering those outcomes. But before we do, Let's get a little bit of information on you, young lady. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background to start?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I started off as an um, athletic trainer, and I went into sports medicine thinking that I really wanted to work in sports and do sports performance. But what I fell in love with instead was uh, the chronic condition piece of weight loss. I started working with women's weight loss and empowerment, and it became more important to me to see somebody be able to walk down and pick their mail up or walk their kids to the kindergarten class or go on that vacation that they wanted to go on. Um, and less important for me to see my team win. Right. And mm-hmm. Not everybody has that pull cause you get, you get to have your own kind of lot in life. And so my mine, end, mine ended up being more about prevention and how to get people, um, that were really sick, healthy enough to enjoy life. I think we can all agree that when you have a healthier body, you get to enjoy life a little bit better.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the foundation of everything. It's how we move through this world, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that when we, when you see that, and when you, uh, when you come up in close proximity to that, that's, you know, that's really powerful to be able to help somebody regain their quality of life back just by using like some things like exercise or diet, really empowering them to take charge of their life. And one of the things that uh, we talked about is in my experience, what I work with more often is with the sickest and the most high needs, high cost members or patients of healthcare here in Arizona. And I've worked in managed care in the health insurance sector, um, as an athletic trainer or as a clinical exercise physiologist for a while. And now I'm working as a health behavior change specialist, working towards really changing behaviors and how do we get people to exercise? How do we get them to do the things that we know science-based that will help them? Um, If only they would follow through with this. And so it becomes my job to really troubleshoot this from a systems perspective and get an idea of what what is the responsibility of Arizona to the patients that are on these high needs, high cost plans, the the people that are over 65 or that are at the federal poverty level and really struggling with disparate health conditions. They don't have as... as, easy access to health insurance or health care or doctor's offices or food, they may not have the same understanding of what health means. And so wrapping around them in, in a way that is really preventative is important, but we're seeing them for the diagnosed conditions that they have. You can't just walk into your doctor's office without a diagnosed condition. So, you know, fundamentally health care is really sick care we're taking care of people after they've had the diagnosis. And if we're trying to get into prevention, we really want to see these people before their patients. We want to be able to impart some kind of prevention plan before they have to go to their primary care doctor's office.
0: So basically what you're saying is like the system way structured right now is you basically reward people with a doctor visit <laughs> by allowing them to become sick mm-hmm. or allowing them to become ill.
1: Well, and I, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that I've heard this so often, like, well, we can't give you any help until you've got this diagnosis. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, even thinking about cancer, colon cancer is a huge uh, cancer risk. It's growing in mortality every year. Um, However, it's 100% preventable, and we know a lot about it. It's very genetic. Um, Yet... We don't pay for colon cancer screens unless somebody's starting to have symptoms.
0: Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. So colon cancer is 100% preventable?
1: Yes, you cannot have colon cancer if you don't have a polyp in your colon. So if you don't have a polyp in your colon, you won't get colon cancer. If you have a polyp, it's not it's not cancer, but it has a higher risk of developing into cancer. So if you end up having your screening, they can remove the polyps. You won't um, generate cancer you may generate new polyps in a couple of years in which case you should definitely go back and get checked as you're supposed to but no polyp no cancer it's preventable
0: so you're saying that if i wanted to have that screen mm-hmm. and i went to my primary care physician and said hey you know i want to have this done mm-hmm. are, you, are you saying i can't get that service
1: you would have to pay out of pocket for it and it's you know somewhere between sometimes you can get it as cheap as two or three grand sometimes it costs a lot more money depending on where you go five six seven grand for that preventative screening. Yes, that's insane. Even though you might have some of the symptoms, you may even have to, if you're over 50, absolutely. You'll get a cancer screening. If you have genetic history, if you have a family member that has had it, you may have an easier time getting that colon cancer screening. But if you are like myself, 30 years old and you don't have symptoms, then you may not have the opportunity to be screened until you already have symptoms, in which case you might already have cancer.
0: That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. So wh- it's not a question of they can't get the service. Are you saying it's a question of whether or not it's covered by insurance? Right. And then whether or not it is, can they afford it?
1: Well, and that's the thing. Can you get the service almost always comes down to cost. Sure. So access to care is a health disparities issue. It's right. a social determinants of health issue. If you can't pay for care, you don't have any access to care.
0: Right. So being poor is a penalty basically.
1: Being poor is a huge penalty for healthcare. That's and that's one of the you know reasons why we have managed care organizations that do cater to people in the the, the federal poverty level because they need they typically need more healthcare. Mm. Um they have they have more social determinants of health. They have they live in zip codes that have less clean water, maybe, if you think about Flint, Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. They live in places with more pollution and more um, all kinds of different things that cause more health care issues, more health issues.
0: And this is what you mean by social determinants?
1: Social determinants, yes. It, social determinants of health is kind of a buzzword right now. We're looking at it from the health insurance perspective to try and identify members of health insurance policies that may need extra care and extra access to care. I, By the way, I work for a fabulous health insurance company that really does care for people. And we do these types of, um, I would say, like exercises for population health management with the question of, how do we serve more people? How do we get more people healthy? Mm -hmm. Not just because it saves us money, because it does, right? We have this federal cost containment system access. The health insurance purveyor for Arizona is really trying to save money. However, we pair that with the appropriate amount of utilization. We don't want you to use less health services and be sicker but we don't want you to use more health services than you need and not get the same care that you need, right? Because you could do either of those things.
0: Sure. So who decides that or how does one decide?
1: It's the health insurance company. It's up to us to decide what the appropriate amount is and what the quality of that service is. And so that's why my job gets really exciting because in some ways I can be prescriptive of what we choose to pay doctors to do more of, Mm -hmm. especially if they're having great success in some way here or there. Right. So right now, taking a step back to your uh, original question, we have the Managed Care of Arizona is largely uh, has an oversight with the, the state insurance access. And access is not prescriptive. It does not tell managed care organizations what they can and can't do in some ways, but it does recommend what are the appropriate measures to look at? What are the most important measures of health in a population. And so it chooses a couple of measures. And then based on the performance of the entire network of doctors, the health insurance company can get penalized for not providing quality in their network. Or they can get incentivized to provide better quality. Some of that incentive is a pass-through payment to doctors. And my job is to find out which doctors are good partners for that. And what exactly we're going to pay them to do above and beyond what they're already getting paid for in the traditional fee-for-service types of things, where you bill for a claim, go in, you get your service, you bill the service, and that's it. On top of that, if their entire patient panel gets better, can get you know, 85% better on some kind of measure, I have the ability to make that judgment call with the doctor's office in contractual language to create that as a secondary payment for them to drive quality.
0: So in your role, you get to sort of direct funds based on the performance of a particular physician?
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So how in the world do you go about grading a Mm -hmm. particular physician? I mean, how do you look at outcomes? It seems like it would just be an incredibly daunting task.
1: It's not really that daunting because there's a lot of science on what is considered healthcare and what are health outcomes. For example, we know that um, in pediatrics, if a baby is seen six times or more within the first 15 months of life, they have better outcomes in their entire life. So one of the, the minimum performance standards that we use is six or more visits in zero to 15. So if pediatric um, offices hit that measure, then we can give them a, a little bit extra payment for that quality.
0: Right, but doesn't that, that doesn't necessarily translate to better outcomes. You're just using statistics that in the past that said, hey, this is predictive of... Is that correct?
1: Yeah, well, but they also have, they're not off the top of my head that I know of the studies' names, but they have studies that have shown that there's a, a high correlation, not mm-hmm. just a predictive outcome, but a correlation in health outcomes. Okay. So okay. there there are outcomes-based measures. Uh, that's one of them. Another one is dental visits. So we know that gingivitis and gum disease actually uh, contributes to heart disease. And so, um We also know that social determinants of health, poor populations have less dental visits. So what I can do is say, hey, if you as a primary care doctor can close that gap and get your patients to see a dentist once a year, I'll pay the primary care doctor or my company will partner with the primary care doctor for that incentive. Mm -hmm. Even though they're not a dentist, it incentivizes them to go make friends. Find a dentist that you like get some partnerships going, get a referral system going, do something. And we're going to give you some extra money to make people well. Do
0: you see much of that though in the medical industry? Like as a whole, do you see people collaborating to create these better outcomes or is it sort of the outlier at the moment?
1: It It is way more prevalent in times where we can incentivize it. So yeah, it follows money. Absolutely. But in behavioral health, that's a whole different thing. I think that the the difference in culture even for the service delivery of behavioral health, they, they understand better. In my opinion, anyways, the whole person or person centered kind of care and they've been working towards whole person centered care way longer than primary care has. We've had this silo where primary care has been very um, prescriptive, algorithm kind of based where you go in and if you check all these boxes, you get this kind of medication and we've done a great job in the last couple of centuries siloing out specialty care. So you go to your primary care. And then if you have a kidney issue, go to a kidney doctor. And if you have a whatever name, your organ issue, you go to different doctors. Right. Right. Um, but the problem is that nobody knows the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing in that system by itself. Mm -hmm. However, with behavioral health, you're getting a more whole person centered care. And Arizona is, I believe, the first now state to require all health insurances for managed care to provide in-network both behavioral health and physical health medicine. And my primary goal is to see more providers that have both physical and behavioral health services on site, mostly because we also know that people that have unmanaged chronic conditions like heart disease and diabetes, that those are lifestyle issues. Those are things that can be changed with diet and exercise. Those are things that can be prevented with diet and exercise, but those are things that can be reversed with diet and exercise, not just prevented. Lots of people that think they have diabetes for the long haul, they can be cured.
0: Yeah, especially if uh, they're in the early stages. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom's a diabetic and she was, you know, one of these people who sat around and actually lived a great portion of her life depressed Mm -hmm. and overweight. Oh, yeah. And when the doctor said, hey, you know what? You might
1: die. Mm -hmm.
0: Suddenly she was walking four miles a day. (laughs) You know, suddenly she was eating better and lost a ton of weight and felt a lot better.
1: Well, interesting you should say that because depression and diabetes are highly correlated. Mm-hmm. People that have diabetes that control it well don't have problems with their health, as often as people that have diabetes that don't control it very well. But what causes a person to not control their diabetes very well, even when they know they should? Most of the time, it's a behavioral health issue. It's depression. And so to my point, bringing in a behavioral health entity or service delivery of some sort, usually a behavioral health um, clinician into a primary care setting where there's chronic conditions, super powerful, because you're treating both the comorbid behavioral and physical issues that we're seeing this huge um, increase in outcomes from.
0: Mm. So, in in you know, in a perfect world, obviously we don't live in one of those. But in a perfect world, if we had a behavioral, spe- I'm, I'm sorry, a behavioral health specialist mm-hmm. inside these offices, what would that change? What would that suddenly cause us to see in terms of outcomes and interactions with uh, physicians?
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of places doing this, and this is kind of a nod to a previous discussion we had about getting around prevention and how to do that. And you know, my my particular passion on that is being able to look at the way we talk to patients and i think that the big difference for physical health and behavioral health is the way they approach patients traditionally in behavioral health the words that you use even the infliction in your voice and the pausing that you do when you speak is a an intervention so the way we speak to people the way we hold space for them the way we allow them to speak to us And the relationship we create in that moment is the treatment itself in behavioral health. And so bringing that into the physical health space, so important. Unfortunately, it's still a huge gap, right? We want to have specialty mental health. There are people that have serious mental health issues. No questions asked. They should be seeing a psychiatric practitioner of some sort outside of the physical health realm. But did you know that jaw pain, stomach ache, insomnia, headaches, um, rashes, those are all subsomatic stress syndromes. Those are mm-hmm. things that we might go to our doctors for saying, hey, I just can't get my stomach ache to go away or I can't sleep at night. And those could be, those could be lifestyle types of things that a behavioral health consultant can talk with you about and they may have nothing to do at all with your physical health. It could be a, an emotional or mental health thing that are, that is imparting this physical health symptom onto you.
0: Yeah. So before we get down that hole too far, define subsomatic for those of us who don't have PhDs, Yeah. Right? <laughs> Sub,
1: subsomatic. So subsomatic means basically just under symptomatic, right? So it's not a full expression of depression or a full expression of anxiety. It's not a diagnosis. It's pre-diagnosis. That's the beauty of it is mm. that it's pre-diagnosis, which means it can be preventative.
0: So these are like cues that someone who's really paying attention might actually pick up on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so in this context of having this interaction, what does the practitioner actually do?
1: So let's say you walk in and you've got stomach ache and you just can't get this side stitch to go away and you changed your diet and you're, you're working towards exercise and you still have something going on that you can't figure out and you go to your primary care doctor. If you're in an integrated behavioral health, primary care setting, your doctor would say, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing what you're saying. And before we try some protein PUP inhibitor, like Prilocet, I'd like to introduce you to somebody that works in our clinic that might want to talk with you a little bit about how you're feeling. Let's not drop any S words. We're not going to even say stress yet. We won't say any A words. We're not going (laughs) to (laughs) say, we're not going to say anxiety. We're just going to say, how are you feeling? Let's see if we can kind of get around what it is that you're feeling Mm -hmm. that might be causing this. And then they'd leave and they'd come back in the same room, two people in the room now, your primary care doctor, and you don't know it yet, but your behavioral health consultant, your lifestyle coach. And they would say, I'd like to introduce you to Brianna Reeser. She's your Um, behavioral health consultant and she's gonna talk with you a little bit about how you're feeling and see if we can't get this figured out for you and then he would leave the room and I would be able to talk with that patient a little bit more about how they're feeling in a way that's non-threatening where I don't have to write them a prescription and they don't have to call a psychiatric facility and schedule out for two weeks and then forget to go or feel shame about having to go right so this is right in the primary care office leverages a lot of things there. It's subsomatic. So it means that you don't have to go outside for some heavy duty care. Some people need that and that's totally okay. But there are people that would really benefit for some low level stress and anxiety management tools within the primary care office, um, for their, for their physical health.
0: Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you give us an example of what a conversation like that might look like?
1: Yes. So we we touched on it a little bit. So you got to hear kind of how that warm handoff is made. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing. So when we're talking about integrating healthcare with behavioral and physical health for those conditions, we want that warm handoff. We want that team-based approach where where the patient is in the middle of that. Sure. And what I, so I might say, sounds like you're feeling like this. It might be based on my knowledge. Here's what could happen. I've read some studies. I know that you weren't in any of those studies. But I have a good idea of what might work for you. Do you mind if I give you some information? And that's a yes or no question, of course. If that's a no, then we drop that. But the next question would be, what would you like to know? And it's more of a collaborative conversation. And you're creating a relationship and rapport building and really using empathy and empowerment to talk with these patients about what it is that they're going through. Mm-hmm. And what, and, and really, it's kind of sleuthing in some ways. You get to kind of dig into it and listen really well and uh, come into the conversation with an air of curiosity instead of an air of authority.
0: For sure. So when we first met and you were telling me some of this stuff mm-hmm. and, and blowing my mind, you <laughs> used an example of uh, someone who had a weight loss issue, but didn't want to stop eating ice cream, I think. <laughs> yeah. Does that apply here?
1: Yeah, 100%. This is one of my favorite stories because uh, I had said this to you, fortunately for me in my career at that point in time, I had learned some things. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I learned was that I don't know everything. <laughs> and that's a great lesson it's a to great learn. thing to know, yeah. <laughs> it really is. Um, and I'm fortunate to be able to have learned that lesson early on, specifically for this lady, before I talked with her. Because I think that we come into um, providing services in any healthcare field passionate. We want to help people change. Sometimes we get so passionate about their end result that we forget to include them in their path. (laughs) And uh, it's frustrating for us as coaches, as healthcare providers. It's frustrating when we do not get the result we want from the patient. And we are so focused on that end result that we're not serving them. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I had to come into that relationship or that conversation with. So started off like this. First thing that she said to me was I have to eat ice cream. (laughs) Oh, so this is a weight loss call and obviously she's triggered somewhere, right? Right. Somebody down the line, not too far away from me has told her you've got to stop eating ice cream. She didn't like it. So she fired them and she calls me (laughs) and she gives me this test. I have to eat ice cream. Right. Um, that's great
0: that you recognize that, that it is a test.
1: Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that when we come into these, I have to" types of things, it's fear-based. It's scary. It's, it's, I, I don't know what to do with this. And the best thing that you can do in that situation using motivational interviewing and my personal blend of motivational interviewing is something i call let people lie because mm-hmm. you don't know i mean maybe she does have to eat ice cream
0: let people lie as in down or leave them alone or let, let people lie, lie as in to using you. the words yes
1: yes let them say whatever story because it's true to her mm-hmm. it may not be true to me what i wanted to say was come on you do not need to eat <laughs> ice cream there are plenty of other things we can do <laughs> Instead, you just using motivational interviewing, I chose the path of curiosity and compassion. And I said, Dang, that's terrible. When you're trying to lose weight and you have to eat ice cream, that sounds horrible. And I tried to, to make that connection with her. I'm not gonna fight with you on this. And I believe you because I choose to believe you even when I think you might be lying. I can't fact check you on that. You're the you are the ultimate authority on your body. Right. You have to eat ice cream. What are we gonna do about that? And she said, Well, I don't really know I don't know. I said, Okay, well. Why do you have to eat ice cream? Tell me. Well, I really need calcium and I'm allergic to milk. Okay. So right there, I had the choice to be like, well, you could get calcium from strawberries or from a hill. never pill. heard of green
0: vegetables. Right,
1: right. spinach. Um, also, milk is in ice cream most of the time. So <laughs> this isn't making any sense to anybody. And now I know why you're frustrated because somewhere along the line, someone's fought with you about this, but well, sure. that's not gonna be me. I'm gonna drop the rope. We're going to just move on. Mm-hmm. All right. So you have to eat ice cream. What what do you want to talk about? Let's go a different direction. What is it that you feel like you can change that will make your health better today? And she said, well, I'm not be- I haven't really been sleeping that well. Well, let's talk about that. W- what can we do to help you sleep? Is there something that you'd like to know from me? Or is there, can I share with you what I know about sleep? And maybe we can make a goal on that. So we did. We made a goal about sleep and that was it. We didn't talk about ice cream at all. And the next call... We didn't talk about ice cream we talked about sleep and the next call she said oh my goodness you will not believe this i went to my doctor and i asked him if there was any other way that i could get calcium and he told me i could take a calcium supplement i don't have to eat ice cream <laughs> and so just holding a space for her and listening to her and approaching that with curiosity was so empowering to her that she felt like she could make decisions in her healthcare. And actually even challenge her preconceived ideas of what she had to do without me having to fight with her about it only because I trusted her and I let her choose the path that she needed for herself. Did she come to that conclusion on her own? And then we really started talking about weight loss then, but it had to be, it's the long game. You have to have compassion. You have to have patience. You have to love people where they're at and you have got to let them choose their path towards their goal.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, it sounds like you built a great deal of trust with this individual. Yeah. And, and you were willing to play her game, you know, and, and it's interesting to me. I, I think that a lot of times when I hear people who've seen a physician or gone to an office to see a particular specialist of some sort, mm-hmm. they're like, well, you know, the guy was in there for 10 minutes and then gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, you, you really can't do that in the span of 10 minutes, right? Like how much time did you spend with this individual just developing rapport before you got to the root of the issue where, hey, you know what? You don't have to eat. There are such things as calcium supplements right. and green vegetables, right?
1: Well, and so that's uh, a great tie back to the healthcare system and why it's so, uh, it, it doesn't allow us to do lifestyle change. Mm. It's great at acute care and trauma, right? Um, but it's not so good at lifestyle, chronic care because it takes time. And let's be honest about it. Most of us have been traumatized by a provider visit. We've gone in there with maybe a little bit. God forbid, a little bit of information that we looked up on our own. Have you mm-hmm. ever gone to a doctor and they said, stop Googling that, Dr. Yeah. Google, and they might even chastise you for your knowledge thirst. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. But the way that we approach healthcare and the way we educate doctors is, uh, is almost a tragedy. We talk with them, we tell them that they're the authority on healthcare, and we give them all the responsibility of the health outcomes. That does two things. It's unrealistic for doctors. It burns them out. It makes them callous, it makes them jaded, it makes them talk to patients in a way that nobody should talk with patients. Yeah,
0: it makes them cold in a way.
1: And they didn't start that way. That's not why they went into it.
0: Well, of course not. I mean, why would you go into the medical field if you did not want to help other people, right? So it
1: does, it breaks my heart when I hear, because I hear it all the time, it breaks my heart when I hear, oh, doctors don't care. They do, they just don't know how to care because we're not teaching them the right tools. We're teaching them the education, but we don't know how to disseminate education correctly in a way that changes people, that communication piece. And, and when we give doctors all of the responsibility for healthcare, the other thing it does is it robs responsibility from the patient. We're not giving any responsibility in a, in a conscious way to the patient in a way that allows them to make decisions. You can't just dump it on them, right? I mean, there's a, there's a process there, but empowering somebody to make their own decision requires that you as the expert with the knowledge understand how much education to give. It's such an art on learning how much education, when to give it and what pace, in what tone of voice even, that will make a difference in them.
0: That's beautiful. I love the way that you said that It broken it down. So nuanced, right? Like just knowing how to talk to people, listen to people, be empathetic, Mm -hmm. get down on their level. Yes. Just like the ice cream story, like you already knew that was bullshit, but Mm -hmm. you play along.
1: But she didn't know it was bullshit. That's the thing, right?
0: Well, yeah, but the thing that's beautiful is that you played along long enough Mm -hmm. to allow her to see that. You know, whereas most people would just throw that away and say, you know, I'm not going to waste my time with this individual. They don't really care. They don't want to change. There's there's nothing here.
1: So I just had started truly practicing motivational interviewing, and it was kind of a test in my own right as well, because I thought, all right, let's play this motivational interviewing game. Let me see if dropping the rope and talking with this patient about something else and doing these things there's about 10 kind of check boxes that you can do if you do motivational interviewing very well mm-hmm. there's about 10 things that you can do on every encounter
0: and just to be clear for those listening the ice cream story is an example of the motivational interviewing. yes
1: ice cream is is an example of that asking for permission before you share always dropping the rope not engaging in arguments um Some people can say, and, you know, letting them be right or something like that, and then allowing that patient to come up with their own goals and supporting them in their, in their journey towards that. Those are a couple of examples of motivational interviewing. And I was, I was not happy with it at first because it felt sort of like, um, some kind of restriction on my clinical expertise. Mm. I didn't want to ask you for permission before I told you what I want to tell you. I want to tell you it because it's going to change your life and I'm amazing and I'm going to help you. But where
0: does that come from though? Is that something that you were instilled?
1: Yes, that's what you get in the education of healthcare. Yeah, you have to be right because if you're wrong, then somebody's life is on the line. Wow. So I think in some ways we get this authoritative kind of education where we feel like we have to own the health responsibility, but it makes us egotistical and it burns us out because it's so unrealistic.
0: Yeah. How much could you actually learn when you think that you already know?
1: Mm -hmm. But to your point, how much can you say in 10 minutes?
0: Yeah, not much, right?
1: And we're not being, doctors are not being paid for more than that. So what are we doing from an education perspective and a healthcare delivery perspective to support Lifestyle change, nothing. Right. Mm. So one of the things that we're doing outside of that, that's kind of new is bringing that behavioral health consultant in so that they can really develop these kinds of things and use motivational interviewing as an actual treatment to lifestyle change, helping people get there.
0: Mm. So I'm curious on the spectrum of of the various states, right? Where does Mm -hmm. Arizona rank? Obviously we're here. So just curious
1: we're doing great actually we're very yeah we're very innovative i think depending on who you work for in health insurance you might say something else because it's been a super rocky bumpy road um, to get where we are right now to mandate that every health insurance provider for managed care for the sickest and the poorest um have both behavioral health and physical health in their network one payer has been very difficult So difficult, in fact, that some of the insurance providers have failed to create a process that supports that. And they stopped being able to pay their providers just as a process because this is new, right? So they stopped being able to pay their providers checks um, in the south of the country, in, in in the state of, in the Tucson area, a lot of money. Some of the providers even had to close their doors because really? they weren't getting paid and and so it's been you know to those providers we're we're on the back end as a state but to some of the providers that have been able to ride that wave and get on the other side they're seeing better outcomes because they're getting paid for better outcomes
0: so when you said mandate mm-hmm. um, I'm curious who is the the party that's doing the mandating here
1: access so that's okay. Arizona cost containment
0: so it's state State's state mandated mm-hmm. okay
1: yes they so we have the freedom and the ability to do do some things a little bit different state by state, even with the, the state and federal um, health insurance policies, kinds of, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, we can do our own little flavor or create our own programs even. And some of the programs that have come out, one of the programs I worked on actually was called Targeted Investments Program. It was a $3 million contract with um, federal government to use at the Arizona state level for what we're talking about today for integrating behavioral and physical health. So, we created milestones that we thought were really important in the service delivery of patients that have both diabetes and depression, as an example. How can we get better care for those people that are costing us the most, that are suffering the most? And we created milestones around what a doctor's office would have to do in order to be successful at that. And then we created tiers of payment incentive for each of those milestones. And then mm-hmm. we canvassed. We asked providers to partner with us on this endeavor where we can start creating collaborative care. Bring a primary care doctor into your psych ward. Bring a behavioral health consultant into your primary care office. Bring justice liaisons into your primary care office. Let's talk about all of the health disparities. Let's talk about people that have been incarcerated with diabetes and now have to manage it on their own. What are we doing with that population? Mm. Let's talk about people that are... Kids that are aging out of uh, the the system and now are going to become young adults with less support than they've ever had. Who's taking care of them when they have comorbid conditions? Because they will have them. And so we use targeted investments as a way to promote innovative change in the system, a disruptive innovative change against even fee-for-service types of things to try and create more comprehensive care. But it's hard. It's difficult. It, cre- it created a lot of problems too. There's a lot of grumbling and there are providers that just don't want to do it. Really? Oh yeah.
0: What's their primary objection?
1: Um, the primary objection is that it changes the way they get paid. So it's scary. Will mm. I still get paid that amount? Well, no, you can't just put any old code in that you want and get everything back. No. But if you hit this, they've never, this never in the history of ever in the U.S. have we paid them solely on outcomes. You've got to actually get people better. That means you've got to talk with your patients enough in a way that changes them. You Imagine can't, that, right? Uh, yeah. There's accountability on the back end. because, And it's kind of, it's very scary as a doctor. If you're the authority on everything... But in your heart, you know that the patient is the one responsible. How do we get that gap to close? How are we getting, oh, we actually have to talk with people like they're people.
0: So it sounds like you're talking about like a results-based system Mm -hmm. as opposed to just, hey, I put in the time kind of a system. Right, right. And I mean, that to me just seems like it makes sense. Like, why wouldn't you pay, pay someone for better results? Mm-hmm. That's how you incentivize human beings, right?
1: Yeah. I think that the other kind of unraveling part of it is when we're creating collaborative care models, let's say you and I go into business together mm-hmm. and you're doing physical health and I'm doing behavioral health and this patient gets better. Well, who gets the money? <laughs> is it me or you? Were you the one that made them better or was I? Right. So then you have this kind of pitting against people. But we're partners, man. We're partners. Let's not argue. Right. <laughs> Money just makes people, you know, think crazy. and act different. Yes, crazy. So we're coming into these how how to fairly incentivize the entire healthcare system mm-hmm. in a different way. How, how can we pay for things differently and create better outcomes? Because right now, you know, gross domestic product for just healthcare alone, what is it, over 18 now? It's crazy.
0: And, it's insanity.
1: And as we are climbing and climbing and paying out for these services, we aren't getting any better in quality. Right. People are still dying in the same amount for preventable diseases like heart disease we know almost everything there is to know about heart disease. And yet for the last 90 years, it's been the number one killer in America.
0: Mm-hmm. And this comes back to the fat sugar debate. Yes. Do you want to go into that a little bit?
1: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this was another kind of conversation that you and I had had. Were we there like for six days or how did we get this whole uh, conversation we, done in one sitting?
0: I did a lot of listening. You did a lot of
1: talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it was worth it for you.
0: I enjoyed every minute. That's why we're here.
1: No, oh, we talked about having a test done that people get. Get done yearly for lipid lipid panel so cholesterol and whether or not that was a marker for true success in health and why and, and are we labeling people with high blood pressure? excuse me high cholesterol as having heart disease that's one part of heart disease is high cholesterol um, in the in the in the the system that we know right now that is a marker and so we've come down this rabbit hole of having a certain amount of LDL or HDL high density or low density lipid proteins in your blood system as a marker for future risk, future risk, Mm -hmm. future and risk, not for what you have right now or what you're guaranteed to have in the future, but maybe a future risk. And while that might sound preventative, it's not, it's actually very, uh, misconstrued in a lot of ways. There are very limited actual studies that have been done that show even to any amount that eating high in fat or having high cholesterol increases your risk for having heart disease in the future. That was one or two studies done so long ago that were not validated, that had lots of uncontrolled variables in them that basically snowballed the, the infrastructure of, of the nutrition industry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we, what we saw as a result of it was um, this war on fat fat is bad, eat low fat. And what we didn't see is that while mass products were taking the fat out of their products, they were adding sugar. And so here we are eating low in fat, and now we do have diabetes and heart disease. Where did that come from? Well, it could be because we're eating higher in sugar and we didn't even know it because no one tells you to look at nutrition labels and find that, hey, this product that's full fat has less carbohydrates and this product that's low fat has more. That's gee, that's a head scratcher. That's interesting. I wonder why that happens.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Right. it comes back to that whole time magazine cover from the eighties with the bacon and the eggs, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, the egg industry has done such a great job of coming back with the incredible edible egg and really doing mm-hmm. some great marketing around, um, good fats.
0: Yeah. It's uh, that, that thing always interested me because, you know, if you've been in the health and fitness world at all, You'll know that anyone who, you know, spends any time in the gym, spends any time crossfitting, you know, a lot of people, uh, runners, distance runners, etc., they're consuming a lot of eggs as like the first thing in the morning. It's one mm-hmm. of the most easy proteins your body can digest. And it's it's a good source of fat and protein, mm-hmm. right? It's not just fat. It's just not just gonna cause cholesterol to rise in your body. And people forget, like, hey, Every cell in your body is bathed in cholesterol. Yes. You know, maybe it's not the cholesterol itself, but some other contributing factor.
1: Yeah. Two things about that. Number one, the majority of the cholesterol you have in your body is genetic. You're mm. born with that. Y- you will have that amount of cholesterol almost regardless of what you do. And that is smoke, not fire. It could be a precursor to future risk, but it's not always a precursor to future risk. Number two, what you eat in the short term may contribute, cause that's why they ask you to fast before you go into those tests. So in the short term, it might contribute to a spike of um, lipids here and there, but what you eat is less impactful in your total cholesterol than what you do. Mm-hmm. Exercise will actually improve your high density lipoprotein and reduce your overall total cholesterol better than any diet will ever do.
0: Right. Yeah. I think the stat that I read was something like 20, only 25% of your cholesterol is dietary. Right. And maybe that's a conservative estimate. I'm not sure. Um, And also the other thing about the whole cholesterol debate is the way we measured it. We're not actually measuring cholesterol itself, but we're measuring your body's ability to to transport it. Mm -hmm. And it's two very different things. And it's a very specific test that a lot of places don't even provide. And you have to travel to get the the actual cholesterol test. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to watch how something as, as misguided as this whole you shouldn't eat fat thing Mm -hmm. just becomes zeitgeist and everyone believes it to be true
1: and it's the jumping point for chronic disease because we're introducing so many more complex processed sugars into our diet unknowingly Mm -hmm. and we've got to understand i think that one of the powerful things to know is that food unfortunately is a consumable product good there's marketing around that. And not everybody wants you to eat healthy. They just want you to eat their product.
0: Oh, hundred percent.
1: And if we don't understand that we're falling into these traps of what is considered health by people that are just trying to push the agenda of their wealth.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And it's funny that you brought that up because as, as you were talking, I'm thinking of this word hyper palatable. Like right now, as we speak, there's somebody in a lab somewhere trying to mm-hmm. make food hyper palatable, you know, so tasty that I want to keep buying it no matter how full I am.
1: That, and I mean, we've seen that with so many studies and even with some of the name brand yogurts, they've created the premier amount of fat and sugar together that lights up the right spots in your brain to make you want another serving. Mm -hmm. And it's not because it's making you healthier. It's because it's selling more product. Right. Right. And, and that's unfortunate, but when we start to understand that and we can really understand the health literacy of the world that we live in and be able to process not only what goes in our bodies, but also what goes in our mind.
0: Yeah, to fight back against some of the misinformation out there. And, right. and the thing that's frustrating is all this information is available, especially, I mean, anyone who's, you know, younger than, than you and I. I mean, certainly, you know, you have a phone, you have access to basically mm-hmm. the world's database and a lot of this stuff can be looked up. But, uh, you know, how do we combat headlinism, you know, like, how do you, you know, how do you as a, as a as a health professional practitioner, and then someone who is promoting this idea that, hey, we should be, you know, well-rounded human beings, mm-hmm. you know, how do you combat this sort of see it, believe it mentality that people tend to have?
1: And it gets increasingly difficult, because going back to the healthcare care disparities, or the social determinants of health, who are the people that these mass marketing campaigns are targeting mm-hmm. so we're talking children oh yeah mcdonald's you know we're targeting um people with low income that don't that can't afford to spend money on good quality produce sometimes you know and and so we're extorting our most needed or most in need population the the, the ones that are the most at risk tend to have that secondary blow of of marketing campaigns or or false advertising.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting you brought up the the idea of children, right? We, we're we facing, you know, childhood obesity rates that the world has never seen before. Mm-hmm. Right. And so at what point do you say, okay, marketing, but on the other hand, parents, mm-hmm. Hey, wake up, you know, something, you, you know, you, you at a, as a parent at some point have to, to take on this idea that it, your child's health is your responsibility.
1: And I think that, that's the beauty of having these collaborative relationships with doctors where we can start to say those types of things. Hey, I'm just the doctor. I'm the messenger. Here's my job. My job is to know things and to say things. That's <laughs> all it is. Like I know things and I say things and I should be able to say them in a way that makes sense to you. Right. So that should be a thing sure. which, that, what what we're not measuring. Right. Um, but your job is to take what I say and do things. So this is a collaborative relationship. And once we get that across, what we're doing is we're taking the pressure off of the doctors in a way that empowers the patients. But we can't do that when we sit back and say, I know everything and I'm going to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. So what we should be saying is, I know a lot of things. I know what might work for you. I'd like to tell you about that. And then I'd like to see what you do with it.
0: 100%. So we've kind of gone down this rabbit hole of healthcare, care, which I think really is a misnomer. It's, it's medical care, let's be honest. Sick care. Sick care, mm-hmm. acute care, medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, so what actually is healthcare care in this case? Let's go ahead and, and redefine it, right? What is healthcare? care? And, you know, you've mentioned the diseases of civilization, mm-hmm. all this preventable stuff that we're experiencing. Why is it <clears throat> that doctors, A, are not taught The nutrition side, the movement side, it's all acute versus, you know, someone who comes in that's more holistically minded, if you will, and says, hey, you know what, we can solve this with movement. We can solve this with, you know, a simple diet, diet change. You know, how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where we get people seeing this idea of healthcare being actually an investment in your future?
1: It's going to be difficult. I think going back to the product um, and consumerism aspect of things, it's going to be difficult because what runs our health care or sick care in this country really largely has to do with pharmacology and the kickbacks from pharmacology. And even a lot of what is paid for in studies and research ends up being done from the pharmaceutical company perspective and so we don't have the money invested to change the system and it's going to be like turning the titanic around right
0: so you're talking about this pill-based culture
1: Mm -hmm. yeah we're talking about pharmacology which you know as a level set great for acute care great for traumatic care really as we go as a country, we're doing really well with keeping people alive when there's a major issue right away,
0: right? When they shouldn't be probably, yeah.
1: In a (laughs) lot of ways and sometimes to our detriment, because so what we are doing really well is we're keeping people alive after heart attack. Amazing. So we're keeping them sicker longer. Yeah. Right. Um, we're not preventing heart attacks, but we're keeping them alive after they've had a heart attack. And so that's, that is the Testament to what type of healthcare we have. We have this very acute traumatic, great healthcare for that. But we just, we have, it's almost like a one or the other type of industry where we can't do both in some ways, right? Like we're just not really good at doing the, the service delivery of a service industry, but as a business.
0: Yeah, but it seems like, um, you know, you've got these people filtering through the system mm-hmm. who've been educated one way. Mm-hmm. And yes. we've got this largest bubble going through the system right now of the baby boomers, mm-hmm. right? Retiring at incredible rates, and they're going to be on the dole for who knows how long, right? So coming after them, right? Like you got to deal with all these problems that you created because the baby boomers are this generation who are experiencing the, mass, right. the massive, you know, sort of on onset of these problems, but right. the people coming after them right? These are the people that we can really help at this point, right?
1: Who is writing the curriculum is the question we should be asking. I think that's the, that's kind of, so I started off direct patient care, one-on-one weight loss. And I I really, it was important for me to be able to take a step back and then another step back and then another step back until I could see a, a more global impact for what I wanted to accomplish in my lifetime. And I think it has to do with understanding who's writing the curriculum and why And where that funding is coming from, um, I, I even go as far as to question, I think that there was um, a medical school in New York that's now providing at cost or no tuition to doctors that are aspiring doctors to go into school. And I'm thinking, well, what are they going to learn? Like who's writing that tuition, (laughs) who's benefiting from this type of education. And when we can start educating our providers to think critically and to solve problems on their own, Mm -hmm. instead of follow algorithms Mm -hmm. and instead of following, you know, evidence-based practices, great, but it doesn't fit 100% of the time. So there's some kind of movement towards personalized medicine that will, I think, drive us in the right direction towards that. But in order to get in front of what is systematically wrong, I think is to start re-educating the way we educate doctors is... Kind of flipping that on its head using communication style in education talking about lifestyle you know in some countries um in third world countries they still have huge epidemics of communicable diseases they have aids they have malaria they have water sanitation issues and we were there once right and we conquered that and because of that as an evolution instead of having those diseases that killed populations off younger now we're We're aging, and we're becoming sick in different ways. And we're seeing the lifestyle types of things, especially because of convenience. So convenience foods and sit down jobs, industrialized types of things. And so after the industrialized second world economy and then first world economy comes, you see more lifestyle changes, lifestyle types of diseases. So even like Thailand, where I did most of my PhD um, data collection, they're just now seeing these types of diseases where they had never seen them before and we get we have the privilege and and i say privilege kind of with a grain of salt (laughs) of hindsight with them because we're in the middle of our epidemic sure and they're in the front of their epidemic so we can say wait wait go back we fucked it all up we screwed it up go back try it different and then we're giving them this information and we're showing them how to educate their doctors with the behavioral based aspect to it so Mm. that's the missing piece is teaching providers, teaching physical health, primary care, chronic condition providers, how to talk to people in a way that changes them for a lifestyle.
0: So when you're doing your PhD Mm -hmm. or your research, your data collection, like what was it that you saw in those populations that is causing this epidemic to evolve in the first place?
1: It has to do with uh, a couple of things. I would say surprisingly for me, so that was Asia, specifically Thailand and Vietnam, not quite as many overeaters or poor nutrition types of problems, but smoking is still a big problem with them. So that's the heart disease aspect of it is smoking and stress. Mm. And they, they're not used to talking about stress, um, in the ways that we have talked about it here. We we're still very stigmatized, but uh, again, we're in the middle of our pandemic or epidemic of lifestyle change, lifestyle conditions. And they're just now having the privilege of recognizing that they have stress. When you're, you know, when you're just trying to survive, you may not recognize that you have stress, but when you kind of get past that and now you're learning how to thrive, it's something that comes up and it's something that's, that's changing quality of life and creating, um, big issues. It's stress is actually one of the top five risk factors for almost every non-communicable disease, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, all have that common indicator of some kind of traumatic stress.
0: Mm. So a question for you on stress. How do, how do we even measure stress? Like how do you diagnose stress? Right? It's not a thing. It's a feeling, right?
1: It's a feeling. So we have, um, with, like with every, I think, like with a lot of things we have uh, a set of questions that we ask people and we call that a, a tool or a screening tool. And in the physical health setting, they use it for people that they think may have stress or depression and anxiety. Um, one of the things that I use or that has been used widely is called PHQ9 or Patient Health Questionnaire, nine questions. And the questions are, how often in the last two weeks have you felt down, depressed, or hopeless? And your answer would be not at all, a little bit, quite a bit, nearly every day or every day. And then you get a score on that, mm-hmm. Likert scale, zero to 5 Mm-hmm. And there's nine questions like that. Pediatrics, it says, how often have you felt like you can't connect with your friends? Or how often have you felt like you wanted to leave school because of the way you felt? Something mm-hmm. like that. I'm, I'm not as familiar with that one, but it's it's a little bit more social minded for that. Um, some of the adult questions are, how often have you been so um, upset that it decreased your productivity at work, mm. something like that. And so those are the screening tools that we have available to us that tend to work really well. And, and interestingly enough, even Thailand is adopting a Thai based PHQ nine for their psychiatric population to really? screen people that would benefit from behavior based intervention and not just physical health.
0: Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So what did you end up doing your uh, dissertation on?
1: My dissertation was on how to get people to exercise. Um, in a roundabout way, that's what I wanted it to be anyways. Mm-hmm. What it ended up actually being is, can we say that people with low health literacy tend to exercise less? Or you can say it this way, people that don't understand their doctor's recommendations may not have good lifestyle choices. Mm. So if you can't, rec- you can't understand what your doctor is recommending you to do, you're less likely to do things that are healthy for you.
0: Sure, sure. And so what did you ultimately determine?
1: Well, that's kind of a pain point. (laughs) (laughs) So if anyone has ever done research, you recognize that, um, you can kind of cut data almost any way you want to. And that's frightening, I think, to say even out loud, but in some ways, if we were to look at the, uh, t-test in a specific way and look at the data aggregate, not risk stratified. So if we looked at it, aggregate data, where it's just raw data, zeros and ones, basically, Mm -hmm. then There wasn't any clinical significance in that data set, which is, I had to take a big breath before I said that because it was like (laughs) (laughs) heartbreaking to be able to get to that point. And most, I would say, lots of people that have done research come out to some of those kinds of conclusions, inconclusive types of things, even things as almost seemingly no brainer as if you can't understand your doctor, you probably won't do what they're telling you to do. Um, However, if you looked at it risk stratified, if you took the people that tended to exercise less and the people that tended to understand less and you risk stratified that into, into a category. And then you looked at those results, then it shows that there is definitely a correlation. Um, I wouldn't say it's a correlation specifically, but there's a relationship between the two. Mm. So there might be a relationship between that. If you looked at high risk only if you don't look at high risk if you look at all aggregate it doesn't show too much but if you look at just the high risk categories for both which i would love to have done then it does show that yeah people that have that have extra time with their doctors that feel listened to that feel supported that feel empowered that understand what it is that they're supposed to be doing have better health outcomes
0: Mm, amazing Amazing. And you said it's a pain point for you. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, definitely a pain point. I think that you want, you want your data to say what you want it to say. Sure. And especially if you're very passionate about being able to impart some kind of thing that will change the course of healthcare. You want to tell, how about I tell you my grand plan with that? How does that sound? This yes. Is little known. This is the first, let's hear it. this is the first thing that I ever presented on as a PhD student. Here's what I wanted. And maybe it can be true, right? Someone that's listening to this podcast might say, oh, this is a great idea. And then call me and then we can make it happen. There you go. So given the idea that health literacy, the ability to understand your doctor actually is the single most um, weighted predictor of health outcomes. That is a proven fact with a bunch of different ways. Um, Given that fact, using health literacy as more than just an indicator, actually as a as a tool to uh, change the way we give service delivery would be pretty cool. What if we screened everybody for health literacy in a better way? Because right now when we screen them, it's very, um, health literacy is, is messy. I think that you can be very smart and literate and then still not know anything about your health. So it's not correlated to social determinants of health like we want it to be or like we thought it was gonna be. It's actually correlated to Nothing. It's really correlated to its own thing. How well you know your body and how much you know about health fluctuates. You can be a kidney surgeon and not know anything about the brain. So if you're going into a a neurosurgeon's um, office, you might have low health literacy, even as a kidney surgeon. So it's very interesting. It's an interesting topic. But if we could find a way that we could really drill down and understand health literacy, we could flag it and then we could pay for it. So what if I, as a doctor said, oh, This patient has low health literacy on the topic that we have based on this tool that we used as a screener. So you show that that's the code. Um, I know that the health insurance company is going to pay me for an extra 15 minutes of education. Mm. So I can spend 15 extra minutes building rapport, educating, talking, bringing this patient into the space and really making them feel supported and empowered in their health condition. Um, I think that would be awesome. So using health literacy to code health outcomes or to code um, health visits in a different way so that you get more time with your patients and you get paid for it.
0: And currently that's not possible.
1: No, no, we're not paying doctors to talk at all. Wow, We're paying doctors to treat and prescribe.
0: Amazing, amazing. So at this point in your career, what was what is um, your definition of success in the role that you're that you're fulfilling?
1: Mm, That's a great question. I'm not sure. I'm kind of in this position where uh, post-traumatic PhD stress is wearing off (laughs) (laughs) and I'm stepping more fully into my life in a way that I felt like I was going to be able to do. Um, Sometimes you got to take a little break, right? So I'm kind of I'm coming back into that question of what is my purpose in my life and what would I like to see? And if you would have asked me that before my, my purpose, and still in some ways is that I'd like to see anything else, but heart disease be the number one killer (laughs) in America. I'd love to be on, on the, on the path to reduce heart disease deaths, um, in a way that's real, um, not just saving them post heart attack, but really reducing the amount of people that are diagnosed with heart disease. Um, not with cholesterol, but with heart disease. That's important to me, and I think that's really important for America to kind of get their heads around. And how, how am I going to do that? and what that means for me as a career next? I'm not really sure. I think. I think um, one of the things that I'm working towards is a curriculum. So we talked a little bit about how, why it's important to educate health providers in a way that um, is not just an algorithm, but really critical thinking and relational skills. And so that's what's coming down the line for me is I'm writing a book on how to let people lie, a empowerment and empathy-based approach to healthcare, and the skills and the tools that are evidence-based psychology principles in health behavior change that go along with that. So book, curriculum for health coaches or healthcare providers, and uh, just continuing to love people along the way and making sure that I make exercise a part of my daily practice.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And before I ask my last question, tell these folks how they can connect with you online.
1: Yeah, I have a couple of things that you can do. Um, Instagram handle health coach Dr. Bree on Instagram. If you want to see kind of what I'm up to on a day-to-day life, you'll see the yoga classes that I teach here in Phoenix. You'll see some events that I hold. I'm actually doing a women's yoga empowerment uh, summit or workshop retreat-style thing coming up this weekend that I'm really excited about. And then you can also get onto my website. It's Ssohealth.com. stands for stop starting over. And that is also my Facebook handle. So SSO health on Facebook, www.SSO health um, on the interwebs. And then Dr. Health coach, Dr. Bri on Instagram.
0: Amazing balls. Yeah, definitely check out the blog guys. Uh, she's got some great articles and content up there. Last question is always the same. As a, as a young woman sitting across from you with a PhD, what does wellness mean to you?
1: Wellness to me means that you can really step into your life fully, that you can get accomplished what you need to do in your life to feel loved, to feel successful, to feel um, happy. And I think that it comes down to two parts, body wellness and mind wellness and blending those two things together. So having a daily practice of wellness for both body and mind, and it's so important to understand that it's different for everybody.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Absolutely, guys. Be sure and check out Dr. Bree online. Pick (laughs) up all of her resources and read her stuff. It's so freaking good. I was really impressed with her the first time I met her. And I know you you will be as well after you go through some of her stuff. Definitely keep an eye out for her book. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for that. I didn't know uh, that was coming out. So that was a surprise to me. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Take care. That's gonna do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys, and if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing, and by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike, and if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com, or pick me up on social media uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.